Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hi, welcome to the show. Today, we're speaking with one of the world's most sought-after speakers on the future of retail, our guest, Doug Stevens. Prior to founding his company, Retail Profit, Doug spent over 20 years in the industry holding senior international roles, including the leadership of one of New York City's most historic retail chains. He's authored two groundbreaking books, The Retail Revival, Reimagining Business for the New Age of Consumerism, and Reengineering Retail, The Future of Selling in a Post-Digital World. His unique perspectives on retailing business and consumer behavior have been featured in leading publications, including the New York Times, Bloomberg Business News, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and more. He's also the nationally syndicated retail columnist for CBC Radio and sits on multiple advisory boards. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Julie. It's great to be here. Great, great to have you. I'd love if you would just kick off by kind of telling us a bit more about your background and how you kind of evolved into this role of really global thought leader on the future of retail. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned in the intro, I've spent the better part of 20 years in corporate retail, working across a number of different disciplines in both Canada and the U.S., in a number of different capacities for retailers, manufacturers, distributors, franchise businesses as well. And after 20 or so years in the retail industry, I thought, you know, I really feel, and I had felt for a long time, that there was a need for a narrative that was looking out on a longer horizon. A lot of the analysis in retail was sort of backward looking. And it just seemed to me around 2008, 2009, there were just, there were so many massive changes taking place in the industry. I certainly had never seen the volume and magnitude of change that we were experiencing across demographics, economics, technology, the media landscape was blowing up. And so I really felt that there, there needed to be a voice in the industry that was looking out on a longer horizon and trying to contextualize these changes. And so in 2009, I launched Retail Profit uh, that was really just aimed at uh, creating research and writing that was contextually relevant for executives, uh, something that they could grab onto and start planning strategy around. And so from the very humble, terrifying beginnings in 2009, the company grew, recognition, and today yeah, I do a tremendous amount of research and speaking around the world. I have a podcast of my own, a couple of books out now, The Retail Revival and Reengineering Retail, The Future of Selling in a Post-Digital World, which came out in 2017. So that's Retail Profit in a nutshell. Excellent. It sounds like you um, started Retail Profit at a really good time when everything was accelerating extremely fast in terms of you know just data usage and application when it comes to the consumer, internet of things, which I'd actually love to pick your brain about first because I see you put out a lot of content about it and there's just, you know, from voice to all the other technologies retailers are using, it gets really complicated and the future might not be as clear to a lot of people. So 
what do you see the Internet of Things forming into over the next five years? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. And I sort of see us at a place right now where I call it the end of the beginning of e-commerce. You know, I, I think that we will look back 20 years from now, maybe even in a shorter period than that. And we'll look at companies like Amazon and Alibaba. And I think it's going to occur to us at that time that, you know, these companies and the way we shop online today was really just chapter one in what I think is going to be an extremely long runway uh, for the online experience. And, and part of that, of course, is the internet of things. When you think about the way we shop online today, it's very conscious, it's very deliberate and intentional. We are still to some extent going online to shop, but I believe going forward, we are going to see the intervention uh, of more and more technology in serving our routine replenishment needs. You know, a surprising statistic is that about 45 to 50% of our consumption is just routine. It's repetitive. These are not products that require tremendous consideration on our part. You know, most of what we're buying, we're buying routinely. We're buying the same brand in the same quantity. And so when you, when you sort of look at that portion of our spending, it would make perfect sense for more of that kind of consumption to just go over to a, a very replenishment-based model. And so, yeah, I see the, the advent of connected appliances, even connected packaging that's sort of monitoring the consumption of products and, and the level of contents within a package and triggering a reorder for our approval. These things are going to become real. And, and just to put a, a point on it, recently Walmart applied for a patent for an automated, fully automated store. But the surprising thing about the patent is that they want to install that store in your home directly in your house. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so imagine a walk-in pantry. This is as described in the patent. Imagine a walk-in pantry in your home that is fully stocked with products, food products, packaged products, and you literally walk in, take what you want, walk out, and that immediately gets charged to your Walmart account and not only that, but according to the patent, it's, it's AI infused as well. So it actually becomes a bit smarter. Every time you select a product, it starts to know your needs, your preferences, your consumption levels better, and it starts making recommendations. So, I mean, this, this, is, this is Walmart we're talking wow. about, right? Wow. The yeah. folks are a company from Arkansas. So, yeah, I mean, this is no longer just a sort of fanciful stuff that sits somewhere in the future. We're, we're on the verge of it. Yeah, that is, I mean, like you said, this is the end of the beginning of e-commerce and today's kind of chapter one. I mean, that's definitely a, a futuristic view. And I imagine it's something that could be possible. It could save on the last mile for Walmart by having regularly scheduled deliveries. Is that kind of the thought behind it? Like this kind of ties into your repetitive consumption? That's exactly the model. They're suggesting that they would uh, just stop by your home on a, a regular basis and replenish the items that you've taken and add some additional items that they think might be of interest. But in essence, yeah, you're, you know, this significant chunk of your consumption would simply be managed for you. And so, yeah, this notion that technology begins to take a greater role in our lives in managing these routine purchases, arguably freeing us up to do other things, you know, and hopefully be able to invest more time in the considered purchases that we need to make, the big things in our lives. That makes total sense. And it also brings up another question because 
voice shopping is something that maybe is gaining some traction. Um, I know Salesforce reports to just voice technology adoption in general by retailers is growing by 127% next year. That's, you know, number here or there, but was voice shopping something that's for repetitive purchase or where does that fit into the equation? Yeah, at the moment it is. At, at the moment, if we look at the usage that's happening on Amazon Echo, for example, on the Alexa platform, it's still not a perfect platform in terms of making a purchase that requires significant consideration or you know, media with which you need to interact to sort of be able to make a cogent purchase. So if I need to see, you know, a lot of data or pictures or images or video, voice is not the perfect platform, obviously, for that. But for replenishment purchases, you know, Alexa, order more paper towels, you know, and, and Alexa has sort of this, the, the last order that you made for paper towels, and it makes that recommendation. And you say, yes, you know, go ahead and do that. It's perfect. But going forward, I, I believe we're, we're going to move into an entirely different phase of, I'll call it a voice interface with, with our technology in general. And I, I fully believe that when we really start to combine voice technology with AI and, and our capability with AI becomes greater than it is today. And I think we're very, very much in, in the infant stages of our development of, of artificial intelligence. I fully believe that each of us as consumers, we will have a virtual assistant that, that is with us at all times that we can just simply call out to when we need them and say, you know, hey, I've, I've got to get from Philadelphia to Columbus, Ohio on Friday, what's the best flight to do that with? Oh, and by the way, where should I stay, you know, if I want to be close to this event center or whatever? We will simply have very natural conversations with our technology. And in return, that technology will become our Sherpa uh, for our consumer lives, much the way we navigate ourselves from point A to point B right now using GPS. I think we're going to become as reliant on artificial intelligence powered by voice as, as we are on GPS today. And so I think it's really gonna change our consumer lives entirely. Totally, and I love these ideas because they're something I could definitely see happening but aren't necessarily here yet. I, we obviously have Siri, but I think we can, we can all agree that Siri doesn't always work as best as we wish uh, that she did. So is this something that you see being embedded into something like our smart devices or is this a separate device? I see the form factor will certainly change. I, I don't necessarily believe that you know, 10 or 15 years from now, we're going to be using the same kinds of mobile devices. But, but I'll give you one example. And, and, and part of the reason that I'm saying this is that two years ago, IBM Watson conspired with uh, Soul Machines, a company out of uh, New Zealand, to create a very lifelike, human-like technology that was powered by AI. And it was demonstrated live at a conference. And in this particular demonstration, you had a, a gentleman who was looking to, to get a new credit card and was turning to this technology for advice on which credit card to buy. And so um, it, over the course of about five minutes, he has this extremely natural conversation with this AI that looks remarkably human in its appearance. 
and just the the natural nature of this conversation back and forth was was pretty jaw dropping and and i mean this was um this was before you might remember google did a demonstration of a technology that booked a hair appointment for someone and um it, that too was was sort of um jaw dropping in in how uh not only how realistic it sounded, but also the fact that the person on the other end of the phone, in the, in the case of Google, didn't even know that they were talking to an AI. So <laughs> this is, this is um, th there, there are, uh, you know, there is enough evidence out there to suggest that this is really happening, that we're, this is where we're going. And it's just a matter of time, I think, before each of us is sort of walking around uh, with this kind of technology in our back pocket. Yeah, I love how you put that, and it's um, it's amazing to see where where actual physical robots might come into play in the future. Um, and this is an awesome segue into the next point because I, I was reading a New York Times article just last week, and they had a piece on the rise of virtual influencers. So we've all heard of virtual assistants. We just talked about how there's probably going to be a virtual assistant in everyone's pocket within you know the coming years. But are virtual influencers which are just computer-generated characters, something that you think will actually gain traction? I, I think it's possible. I, you know, um, in, in re-engineering retail, I talk about a phenomenon that uh, uh, was happening in China with a technology called Zhao Ice. It was a technology that, if, if I'm not mistaken, was being powered again by IBM technology. And this being, if you want to call it that, um, was essentially available to, uh, to Chinese internet users. They could basically just connect with Zhao Ice, as they called her, and you could carry on conversations with her. Anything. You could you know, talk about your relationship breaking up or the new job that you just got or the fact that your parents were coming for dinner. And this, this AI just sort of related to you you know, sort of, again, carried on a conversation with you, learned little bits and pieces about your life, about you as an individual. And the next time you went to speak to her, she would actually sort of talk about some of the things that she remembered from previous conversations. Well, the, the interesting thing about this was that there were literally millions upon millions of Chinese people, uh, largely young people, talking to Zhao Ice on, on a daily basis. Wow, that's... That's surprising. I mean, it reminds me of the movie Her, which is totally fiction. So exactly, yeah, very much that sort of thing. And when when asked why they did this, a lot of them said they they felt that she was a friend, that they they felt they could confide in her, and that oftentimes she would give them really good advice uh, about what to do in their life. I mean, this is again, this sounds like something out of a you know out of an Orwell novel, but I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're there. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's sort of in many ways, we're ceasing to distinguish really between what is an AI and what is a, a human being. And, and I think 10 years from now or 15 years from now, I, I don't think we're necessarily going to care if the voice on the other end of the line is being driven by technology or whether it's human, as long as we're getting the information that we want. So, Virtual influencers, yeah, I, I can totally see that happening.
Well, it's great to hear your your perspective on that because the the example from the New York Times was Michaela Sosa is the character and they call her little Michaela and she already has over 1.6 million followers. So we know that people like to follow this type of profile, but just to think about brands creating one from scratch that really resonates with their target audience is an interesting perspective. And I like to hear that maybe that is a possibility in the future. Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, you know, and I, and I think that um, in, in a weird way, what this does is it puts us as humans in a position where we really have to start thinking about what we bring uniquely to the table. And I think that's particularly important in retail. You know, um, we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, every year sort of this advancement in technology where, you know, AI is getting uh, more sophisticated. Um, AI is becoming a lot more robust in, in what it's capable of doing. We're seeing robotics certainly moving into the retail landscape. And I think that this is forcing retailers to really ask the question, what is it that a human being can bring to the table that these technologies cannot? Um, so things like creativity, things like empathy, things like just imagination are, are things that certainly technology hasn't quite mastered yet. And so these are really the domains of human beings. And so if anything, I think we're moving into a future where the retail landscape, yes, will have a lot, an awful lot more technology in it to, again, handle a lot of the, the routine and repetitive aspects of, of retail work. But I also see this sort of renaissance whereby humans are, are going to actually command a premium for the skills that are innately human. Uh, and, and again, largely it's, it's creativity and the ability to empathize with people. The ability, the ability to build a rapport with people is going to be uh, really important, I think, in this future. Yes, I could definitely see things that are innately human um, charging a premium for those. I wanted to move on to circling back really retail specific. Um, you've said a lot that stores are becoming media channels in a sense, and the purpose is to tell a brand story. Um, and one quote I like from a recent article you wrote, you said physical retail stores are not only a powerful media channel, I'd go so far as to argue they're now the most manageable, tangible, and measurable media channel available to a brand. Will you expand on your idea of a retail store being a powerful media channel? Sure. So, you know, right now we're sort of at this place where the retail industry is pointing to what's happening and saying it's, it's omni-channel. And omnichannel is this word now that's getting kicked around an awful lot. And, and I'm not a big fan of the word, not just because it's being overused, but I think because it's sort of really misdiagnosing what's happening right now. And, and what I see happening is something that's, on the one hand, more complex, but on the other hand, I think it's infinitely more optimistic and inspirational than, than just sort of saying everything's omni-channel, it's, it's one big experience from you know, mobile to desktop to store back to mobile. I don't see it that way. What I think is actually happening is, I believe that media in, in all its various form factors is now in the consumer's mind becoming the quote unquote store. We have a reality here in North America whereby in 66% of cases where a consumer recognizes they need a product, they're not going to a store, they're going to Amazon in 66% of cases. And they're, they're searching for that product on Amazon. If they know exactly what they want, that number rises to 76%. 
So in three quarters of all cases where consumers recognize they want something, they're going directly to Amazon to look for it first. Now, if the primary purpose of a store was to merchandise products, convey product information and transact sales, you could make the argument that in virtually every media channel right now, I can do that. Whether it's a connected ad in a magazine, whether it's an online store, whether it's a mobile store, whether it's a store on Facebook, all of these places are places now where I can merchandise vast amounts of product. I can convey tons and tons of rich product information and I can transact sales in one click. So media is in effect beginning to fulfill all of the functions of traditional stores, but doing so on a level that no physical store could ever conceivably pull off. So media is becoming the store. But on the flip side, and this is where, to my mind, it gets exciting. The opposite thing is happening. Stores, physical stores, are becoming a really powerful media channel. And I'll explain kind of what I mean here. So if you accept the fact that media traditionally through history has always been effective wherever people gather in numbers. Uh, that's sort of just the going in premise of effective media is that you have to appeal to an audience. So a thousand years ago, where was that audience? Well, people gathered in the center of town. They went to the market bazaar, the, the, the Agora, the Placa, whatever, whatever you wish to call it. But that's where people got their information. That's where they, that's where they uh, transacted commerce and where they found new products and new merchants. So it was physical space. And then along comes the printing press. And all of a sudden now we can, we can disperse information through print media and that becomes the gathering place. It's the daily newspaper that people are kind of gathering around to get news and information. That's displaced by radio. Radio is displaced by television. And now we live in a world where it's digital media. Digital is the new campfire that people are gathering around. But here's the problem. The problem is it's incredibly hard now to actually reach consumers in an efficient and cost-effective way through digital media. And I'll give you an example. In North America in 2018, spending on digital was up about 34%. The cost per click, if you wanted to, to go out on the open market and try and get clicks on your ad, that cost went up by about 30% in 2018. But here's the punchline. Clicks, actual clicks only went up by 3% against a 34% increase in spending. So we've clearly reached a point of significantly diminishing returns on digital spending. Very difficult to get consumers to find them in the digital space and then connect with them in a meaningful way. But here's the thing, where are people gathering? They're gathering in physical spaces. Again, virtually every city I travel to, uh, I just got back from Tokyo uh, and when you walk through Harajuku and, and area, shopping areas like Shibuya, uh, first thing in the morning, there are lineups of kids waiting to get into stores. Walk through the streets of New York, you will find lineups outside Supreme and Kith and Glossier. Go to London, uh, you'll see the same phenomenon taking shape. People are gathering in physical stores. The problem is retailers are not valuing the media effect of stores. We know that, that stores have a defined media effect within a market. According to the National Retail Federation, uh, the presence of a physical store in a market can generate e-commerce sales of anywhere between 27 and 35% lift 
just by having a physical store in the market. So clearly there's a media effect, but retailers are not valuing the actual contribution of that media to their overall network sales or, or the value of, of a store. So yeah, I, I believe that we're seeing a complete turning of the tables where in effect, media is becoming the store, but stores are becoming an incredibly powerful, manageable, and, and measurable form of media in the physical world. I love that. And I love the supporting stats that you provided. Um, and it makes me wonder, is your opinion that maybe something like search engine marketing, which has been such a huge part of marketing and for retailers the past maybe decade or so, do you think that will see a decline? Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. I, th- I think, um, you know, up until now, it's been fertile ground, right? Um, as, as retailers have sort of awakened to the idea that consumers are spending this inordinate amount of time online, uh, that, that online is the place where they, they could be reached. We've seen this influx of brands and retailers now into the market, increasing their spending uh, disproportionately and exponentially. And so, yeah, the market is, is flooded. And, and, and moreover, I'll just sort of give you a, a quick story that sort of, I think, highlights the point. I, I have one client that is a major beauty brand, one of the largest in the world. I was recently with them at an event and I asked their chief marketing officer, uh, just sort of casually, how many consumers a year go through their various branded properties in the market, their branded stores, whether it's airport retail or uh, standalone retail or, or online. And he hazarded a guess that it would be somewhere in the range of about 30 million consumers a year who go through some experience, some branded experience that the brand is providing. And so I asked him, if you were to go to a Madison Avenue uh, advertising agency and you were to say, hey, we want to connect with 30 million consumers a year, but not with, you know, like a 30 second Facebook ad or a YouTube pre-roll ad or a quarter page in the New York Times. We, we want to connect with 30 million consumers with an experience that may be like 20 minutes in duration, that's immersive, that really allows them to understand our products and our brand and our culture and begin to feel like they're part of that, that brand ecosystem. How much do you think that would cost? And so he, he thought about it for a second and he looked at me and he said, well, it would, it would be incalculable, of <laughs> course. You know, it would be astronomical. There's no, there's no way we could even attempt that. And, and he's right. The cost would be astronomical, but here's the thing. They're doing it. That's what they're doing. Every year, 30 million consumers are going through that kind of experience. We just don't, number one, we don't know if it's a good experience or a bad experience. And secondly, we're not valuing it. We're not saying, okay, well, you know, if that would cost us $50 million to go out on the open market and buy that kind of media, then why aren't we attributing that value back to stores? You know, why isn't that part of the way we evaluate the productivity of a physical location by virtue of the number of consumer impressions they deliver each year. I think it's an important metric that we're completely ignoring. Right. And not only that, but I've heard that, you know, the customers that do shop multiple channels, you know, have a higher lifetime value. So those are actually the more valuable customers that you're reaching in the stores if they're also online shoppers. Absolutely. You know, and 
And again, I mean, the in-store experience is something that you can truly validate. You know, if, if somebody watches 15 seconds of a 30-second pre-roll ad on YouTube, well, you're going to get charged for that as a brand. That's an impression, according to YouTube. But, right. but, the, but the question you have to ask as a marketer is, does it matter? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Did, you know, were they, was it a really conscious impression? Were they just waiting for the 15 second countdown so they could hit skip? Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> and if they didn't, if they watched the whole damn thing, did it really even resonate with them? We don't know. The only measure we would have is did they click through? But when you have someone who is physically present in your retail location and you are able to not just measure the fact that they are there, that a human being is there in the space, but you're able to gauge how long did they stay? Who did they interact with? What did they interact with? Did it result in a purchase within the four walls of the store? And potentially today we can even measure, was there a downstream purchase that was a consequence of their being in the store? You know, so I think it's a, I, I think it's not, not only a, a better opportunity for engagement, but I think that our, our capacity to measure the value of that interaction is much greater than what we have online as well. Right. And because you say, and it's probably true that a lot of retailers aren't valuing the in-store experience as much as they should, or not putting enough thought into how to make it a true media channel. I would venture to say that the KPIs aren't even identified or they're not where they will be in a few years from now. What's in your mind as far as new KPIs that we're going to see with, with future stores? If things go the way I think they're going to go and, and physical retail becomes increasingly leveraged as, as a form of media, as opposed to being simply a form of distribution, I believe that the equation for working out the productivity of, of a store looks something like this. I think each year what you would have to look at is what were the sales? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we don't, we're not going to completely discount the fact that stores still sell things. So what were the sales a within the four walls of the store and B what attributable online sales are reasonable to, to, you know, attribute to that location. Um, as I mentioned, you know, just the presence of a store actually raises online sales. So if we can credit some of that to the store or all of it in a particular market, great. So now you have the sales. But the other side of it is the physical media value of the store. So how do you measure that? I, I believe that it's a combination of, of two things. I think, first of all, as an organization, a brand has to sit down or a retailer has to sit down and say, okay, what is a positive in-store impression worth? You know, we know what it costs to go out and buy a Facebook ad or to buy an ad in a magazine, but what is based on that, what would we approximate the value of a physical in-store impression with a consumer. What's the value of that? So whatever you determine, and I'm not suggesting these are, mark, these are, are numbers that are gonna show up in a shareholder report or you know, something that Wall Street's gonna be taking into consideration, but internally, I think it's really important that you establish that value. So then your metrics start to look like <clears throat> you have sales on the one side, but then you have a media value whereby you say, okay, if the cost or the value of an impression in store is, let's say $5 per customer, and we know we saw 2 million customers go through our store, now all of a sudden we have a potential for an, an additional $10 million in value that this store is driving. The question is, 
The only question remaining is, were those impressions positive or negative? And I believe that net promoter score is the best and most direct way of getting to that answer by asking consumers, is this an experience that you would recommend to others? If the answer is yes, then you know you've got positive $10 million in impressions. If the answer in general is no, it's a horrible experience, I would never recommend it to anyone, then you also know that that store is generating $10 million in negative media value. So it doesn't really matter if their sales were $5 million, that store in my opinion is in the hole because they're basically creating lousy impressions on the market. So to put it in a nutshell, I've been through really small stores that brands have and, and I've had remarkably great experiences. So while their sales may not be you know, astronomical, they may not be as much as, as some of their larger stores, their media value is very, very high. By the same token, I've been through flagship stores on the Champs-Élysées or, or Fifth Avenue that are absolute crap. And the, their sales may be good because of their location, but as a brand message, as a media message, they're terrible. So if we're just evaluating both of those stores purely on the basis of their sales, chances are we're gonna close the small store and keep that flagship open when that is exactly the wrong thing to do once you start considering media value. Yeah, and it's an interesting point you brought up flagships because I was actually going to, to ask you about that. I've had um, some guests on the show um, with differing opinions around strategies related to flagships. Uh, I had one person say that you should invest in your flagship stores when it comes to rolling out um, new experiences and you know creating that media channel in store. But then I've had other people say, no, flagships are always going to do well. They're always gonna make money. They're A stores. You need to go to the B and C stores and take them to an A. So is that kind of, is the latter where you kind of stand or do you think it doesn't matter? I believe every store is a flagship store. I, I, I think if, if you're a chain and, and you're rolling out stores that you, that you don't regard as being the true unfiltered expression of your brand, if you're rolling out stores that you feel are less than that or, or stores that you have to apologize for and say this is a B or a C store, I, I think you've, that's your first problem. Um, to, to have you know, a, a really incredible experience uh, somewhere in Soho, New York uh, is great. But then to say, but, but in other markets, you know, like Kansas City, Kansas, or um, you know, uh, some place outside of Chicago, we're just gonna give people a, a relatively ordinary, mediocre, banal experience. I, I think that's crazy. Every store needs to be the, in my opinion, the full expression of the brand story. Every store needs to hire brand ambassadors that you can be proud of representing your story to the public. If all you're doing is giving a, a bunch of tourists in Soho a great experience around your brand, but everyone else in the country is getting something less than that, then that's completely defeatist, in my opinion. Great. Well, I love to have a third take on that kind of debate. So thank you for providing that. And I definitely can see your point there. One of your most recent podcasts I saw was about the future of luxury, which obviously is a very distinct category in terms of retail. And you actually say, you know, the new definition of luxury is freedom. And I, I thought that was a really interesting take. And so I wanted 
you to kind of expand a little bit on that today, if you could. Yeah, sure. And when I say, you know, the future of luxury is freedom, it's important to sort of delineate between the West and the East. I would argue that in in Asia uh, today, the future of luxury is still very much about products. I know there's some debate around the, um, the, the, the long-term outlook for markets like China. Uh, I know that um, China, the Chinese government is cracking down on uh, Asian consumers, Chinese consumers traveling abroad and bringing, bringing back tons and tons of, of luxury goods. So there's some debate around that, but I think we can argue that luxury in, in Asia is still very product-driven. Uh, in the West, however, and when I say the West, I mean Western Europe, North America, and other uh, more developed markets around the world, I, I may, I've made the argument that the nature of luxury, the definition of luxury is, is changing somewhat. And so to, to appreciate this, I think we have to sort of step back and sort of agree that uh, the, the whole premise of luxury is status, that we have traditionally bought luxury products because they are a reflection of status in, inherently, right? And it didn't matter whether it was the ring on your finger or the size of your kingdom or, you know, whatever, however we defined luxury through the ages, uh, it was primarily about status. And, and so these were things that were arguably more rare and more exclusive. And so th- this, w- this has been products uh, so, you know, for baby boomers, for example, we sort of mark these milestones in our lives with various things. You know, I got a big promotion, so I'm going to go buy a Rolex watch or I just got a raise. And so I'm going to lease a Mercedes Benz. And so it was very much about sort of marking these occasions in our lives with goods. In the 1990s, uh, late 80s, 1990s, uh, as dual income families proliferated, it became about services. If you were really doing well, you had a nanny and a housekeeper and a grass cutter. You know, it became about not just goods, but, but services. Today, we're in a place where, for a number of reasons, I think millennials are, are erring more toward experiences than products. I think they watched their parents climb the ladder, scratch and claw to get all these material goods only to have that whole thing come crashing down in 2008, 2009 through the recession. They saw their their parents uh, wind up splitting a lot of those assets as they divorced. About a third of millennials grew up in households uh, that were afflicted by divorce and those divorces are still happening. We call it gray divorce now. So I think to a large extent, millennials are a generation that has been very disillusioned around the true value of material goods. And so for that reason, it, it is more about experiences. What, where are they? Who are they with? What are they doing? The other reason that that's happening is because we live in a world now where your social status is, is largely defined by what you show people on Instagram or any other social network. Your, your social currency, if you will, is not just what's parked in your garage or how much your sofa costs or what's on your wrist, but it's, it is literally what you're, what you're able to do, where you're able to go and participate in. So experiences are king. But I think moving forward, this notion of freedom is going to be particularly important. The ability to, um, to, to go and work abroad, to you know, just, just maybe up and go to Barcelona and spend a month there and, and work from Barcelona, or the ability to just say, you know what, I'm gonna go off the grid for three months. I'm, I'm gonna completely disconnect and decompress and, and have a digital detox. 
that is now becoming a luxury. You know, it's considered to be a luxury. Um, so this notion of being free, free from debt, free from encumbrances, free from material possessions that lock me down to a particular location, the freedom to just go and do what I want to do when I want to do it, including disconnecting from the matrix, that's a luxury in today's world. And, um, and I think it's going to become even you know, perceived as a greater luxury as we move forward. So as I'm hearing you take us through this concept, it sounds like it, we went from a society that placed high value on goods, um, then it kind of changed to services, uh, like a nanny or a maid, and then the generations now are looking more towards experiences, which heavily tie in with the concept of, of freedom. Um, as being the cost of luxury or what luxury is. In the traditional sense, if we talk about like the luxury products, um, or is this not related to luxury products, um, this concept? I think it it is. Um, And and even now, we can start to see some luxury brands and luxury houses are now starting to make the turn toward experiences. Uh, LVMH, for example, is now investing in hotels, right? Because I think they recognize that for Western consumers, and again, this is this is very much a Western phenomenon, but for Western consumers, the ball is definitely moving and it has moved toward experiences. So luxury companies are now saying, look, how you know, how can we translate our brand from being about a handbag with a logo on it to becoming about more things in a consumer's life, whether that's a food and beverage experience or a travel experience or a hospitality experience, we're moving toward experiences. What brands need to need to figure out now is how can we deliver a sense of status and a sense of luxury while at the same time giving people that innate sense of freedom that we're we're not we're not tying them down to you know, indebtedness, we're not dictating who they are as individuals, but we're allowing them, them to express themselves while at the same time, yeah, enhancing that sense of status and, and of personal value. So I think it's gonna be a tricky thing to navigate for many brands because they have been so entrenched in this idea that we are, you know, our brand is about uh, a watch or a handbag or a pair of shoes uh, that we're, we're, we're not just an idea, we're actually a physical product. And, and so they have to sort of break out of that thinking. So luxury brands, as much as they could invest in maybe creating um, more branding material or more in-store experiences, it sounds like you're saying in the future, they really need to embed themselves in the luxury experiences that are attracting the new generations. Yeah, I, I think you have to, and, and, I, and I make the same recommendation to all brands, in fact, not just luxury brands, but a brand at its essence, if it's healthy and robust and performing well, great brands are not just about a particular thing. They are an idea. I'll use Apple for, for lack of a, a more widely uh, acknowledged example. But Apple wasn't just about a different kind of computer. It was about a totally different way of thinking about computers. It was about a totally different ethos, really, around the whole idea of technology. And um, so it, it really and truly was about thinking different. And, and so 
the brand was kind of built out of that idea. I think all brands need to explore what's the big idea around our brand. And it's really the idea that we're selling to consumers. It's not a, a product or a particular category. And once you sort of embrace this idea that your brand is an idea, it allows you to take that idea into all kinds of different experiences, into different categories, and ultimately to adapt to changing consumer tastes and preferences uh, much, much more effectively than if you're kind of locked into this idea that you are a particular product with a particular logo emblazoned on it. It just gives you much, much more range. Yeah, I love how you how you frame it that a brand is an idea. And everything we've talked about has been so interesting and, and futuristic. I really think it's going to resonate with, with our audience of listeners. I would love to hear more from you. I, I could listen to these ideas you have all day and kind of how you think strategically about the future. So where can our listeners go if they want to, to hear more from you? Yeah, so lots of different places. The mothership is retailprofit.com, and that's P-R-O-P-H-E-T.com. Uh, so if, if listeners want to go there, from there, you can find out about our podcast on both iTunes and Google Play, which is just called Retail Profit. We also do a, uh, a web series called The World in Store. So I have the the luxury of traveling around to some pretty cool places every year. And everywhere we go, we look for the coolest of cool retail within those cities. And we document that through this web series. Also very active blog uh, at retailprofit.com and um, retail profit on Twitter, LinkedIn, you name it. Won't take long to track us down. Yep. All the usual suspects. Well, thank you so much, Doug, for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. It's been a pleasure, Julia. Thanks for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.